Revelation chapter 9, and we'll visit here in just a, in just a few moments. Revelation chapter, chapter 9. There's an interesting verse, uh, I'll just quote it. <clears throat> but when we first get into the judgments of God, this is, and again, I'm not going to spend all the time talking about this, but you have the three sets of judgments. You have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. When you get towards the end of the seal judgments in Revelation 6, um, there's a response. Well, and rather than me talk about it, just flip back to Revelation 6. Let's just, Revelation, so you hold your finger there, not far, but Revelation 9, go back to Revelation 6. <clears throat> and there's a question that, that is asked. So let's pick up in verse 12. Revelation, Revelation chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. And remember, who is it? You can answer this out loud. Who is it that's opening the seals? Jesus, remember? Only one was found. <clears throat> only one man was qualified to break the seals and start this, to reveal the deed, the title deed of the earth. Only one man was, was worthy to do this. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ, this lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So it's, he's opening the seals. Then when we get to the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, they will be opened or they will be led by angels. Verse 12 says, <clears throat> When he, Jesus, opened the sixth seal, I look and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Again, theologically, this is important because we're in the tribulation. These are the sealed judgments. The Bible says we're not appointed unto wrath as the church of the living God. The bride of Christ is not appointed unto wrath. So if we're reading verses that are describing the tribulation and God's pouring out His wrath, Guess who will not be here? The church, right? Right at the beginning. So it says in verse 17, For the great day of their wrath, it's talking about the Father and the Son, the one that sits on the throne and the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It says, For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the last little phrase, the question. And who can stand? Who can stand on their own merit facing the wrath of Almighty God and our Lord Jesus Christ? I got an answer. Nobody can stand. Amen? Nobody can stand. And folks, that's why you and I need to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why salvation matters. That's why I was thinking about Brother John. You know, we buried one of our, our elders, uh, patriarchs, Brother John Brooks. We did his funeral on Monday. and um, So when you think about death, I mean, there's all these key passages that come to mind. And I shared those in the service. And I share a lot of them with the, with the family. And we usually meet before we come in anyway. And one of those profound thoughts... Uh, that I normally share with every family is uh, 
is the events of the thief on the cross. I don't know if you think through stuff like this, but you know it by heart. You've heard the story. It's in the scriptures. You've read it. You've heard it preached. You can even memorize some of what is said. The events of the cross, what Jesus says to the thief on the cross. Matter of fact, you could get up now and tell me what was said. But it's so profound because Christ is on the cross. His cross. Being punished for the sins of believers. Bearing our guilt and our punishment. And in the course of time, this, this thief who is rightly being punished, he admits that himself, he's a criminal, and he ought to be executed. He realizes that Christ is a king. And he says, this is in Luke 23, profound, this thief on the cross realizes Christ is king. Now let me say this again. Where is Christ? Christ is on the cross. He realizes that the man on this cross that's dying, not for himself, but for others, that's how he identifies Christ as king. But he says to Christ, while he's on the cross, remember me. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. That means he's a king. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And then those famous theologically profound words that soothes our soul and makes us realize that we're eternal and that salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus says to him, Today, you will be with me where? In paradise. Now, I'm not going to get into all the theological ramifications. That's not the final heaven, but it is paradise. And is a synonym of heaven at that point in the history of the world, in the history of God's timetable. Yes, you could say it's heaven. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, just think for a moment. So where was Jesus going to go when he breathed his last? To heaven, right? If he's going to be there when this guy gets there, then he's got to be in heaven because he says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Do you understand the significance of this? Do you understand what Jesus is reminding us about in this event? He's reminding us of the immortality of the soul. See, the other thief died and went to hell. We live forever. But Jesus told that thief on the cross when he repented and believed in who Jesus was today, you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus at that moment to that thief, number one, reminded us where he's going to be. You know, Jesus did a lot of things. You know, he, he didn't cease to exist you know, people in our minds, we kind of roll this around in our minds. When Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the same truth for him is what makes the truth for us absent in the body's present. He, he's still alive, right? What makes him him is not the, the sarks, the Greek word for flesh. That's not what makes him him. What made him him is the seed of God. He's the nature of God. He's God. So when he breathed his last, he didn't cease to exist. Just like right now. If you were to die today, you don't cease to exist. You go on. You have an eternal soul. Well, Jesus promised that thief that, that today you will be with me in paradise. And, and I just want you to think, you know, it's appointed a man wants to die. You know, we all, we all have, we all face that. Death and taxes, you know, they say. Is that what Christ is going to say to you? Is that true for you today? If you were to leave this world today, you will be with me in paradise. But when Christ said that to that thief on the cross, he just affirmed to you and I the immortality of the soul, how important eternal life really is. And that's one of the interesting things. I always want to share that. By the way, just chasing a rabbit already, <clears throat> Today you will be with me in paradise, okay? Uh, if you go to, well, let's go there. I, I say that, so let's just go there. Uh, 
2 Corinthians. Go to second. Hold your finger. Revelation 9. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look what Paul said. Uh, because Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul was taken. By the way, he uses the same word. Paradise, or sometimes also translated the third heaven. Paul mentions that he, too, while he was living, God gave him an experience where he also went to paradise. So Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. You know, four years later, three years later, not sure exactly when, but it was just a few years after Paul was born again. God in His sovereign will allows Paul to see things and he takes him to paradise. And so Paul never mentions it except here because he has a bunch of people, pseudo-apostles, fake apostles, persecuting his ministry. So he ends up defending himself and, and because these braggarts, he calls them braggarts, these false apostles who are bragging on their own abilities, their own looks, their own uh, speaking abilities. He's responding to that. So this is what he writes. I'm in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 1. I must, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Now, when he mentions the 14 years ago, he's talking about 14 years from the date that he penned this. Okay, So this was, this was early in his ministry. This was within the first few years that Paul had been saved. He says, I know a man in Christ, he's speaking about himself, um, who 14 years ago, by the way, the word called up there, guess what word that is? Rapture. Isn't that interesting? He was called up, harpazo. He was raptured to the third heaven. And, and this is where Paul's honest. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But God knows. And I know that this man was, again, raptured, called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he, Paul, heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. And then he goes on to talk a little bit about his condition with these men. So there's Paul in defending his ministry uh, to the Corinthians and responding to the pseudo-apostles who were persecuting him as an apostle, reminds them that when it comes to revelations and visions, you don't get much more uh, important than having a, a revelation of the paradise of God or what the Bible would call the third heaven. I just find it interesting that a few years later, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then just a few years later, Paul also refers to it as paradise. This affirms 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, out of the body is where? Is present with the Lord. If you're, if you're out of, as a believer, if you're out of the body, you're present with the Lord. That's a biblical truth. That's one of the laws of spiritual nature. When you leave this body, without this body, you're present with the Lord. And this is why Paul argues this truth, 1 Corinthians 15, is our victory. Even when we're experiencing the loss of a loved one, if that loved one is saved, this takes away the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, towards the end of the chapter, around verse 50, this removes the sting of death. To know that when we leave this body, immediately, those of us that are saved, immediately we are into the presence of the Lord. Now I want to just share with you, before we read Revelation chapter 9, I want to read you, I wrote down several prophetic Bible verses that are related to where we are in the book of Revelation. Just, just thinking about biblical prophecy 
and, and where we are, we're right here in the midst of the trumpet judgments. And so from a timetable, when we're in Revelation chapter 9, we're obviously in the second half of the tribulation. And I just want to read some Bible verses that are related to God's prophetic word. 2 Peter 3 says, We are waiting on a new heaven and a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 13. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus designed salvation. Jesus is designing paradise. You know what he said in John 14? I'm going away, but I go to prepare a place for you, a dwelling place for you. So he is the author of salvation. He's also the architect of paradise. He's preparing a place for us. Says Abraham, this is out of Hebrews 11, Abraham, who is the father of all who have saving faith, was looking forward to the city that has the foundation whose designer and builder is God. And we're talking about this eternal home in heaven. You know, later on when we're in the book of Revelation, we'll, we'll be introduced into where your, your dwelling place is, where this, this personalized space that, that Christ is preparing for every believer is located inside of this new Jerusalem, this, this uh, structure, this cubed structure that descends out of the heavens. And, and from reading Scripture, it's, it's there somewhere now, but that's where you're abiding. And that's what Abraham was looking forward to. For a city whose builder and designer is God. We want to be dwelling in the city of God. We sing songs about that. I love what Revelation 4, 1 says. I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said. Come up here. Folks, I can't wait to leave this world and hear my Lord Jesus say, Come up here. Folks, the alternative is destruction. Either we're going to be raised forever with Christ or we're going to be condemned forever in the devil's hell says in 1 Thessalonians, For God has not de destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we are living for Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2 says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, it's a big deal. Noah and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. Big, big illustrations for Christ. And Peter's picked up on that. I remind you that in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 24 and 25, and in Luke, Luke 21, when Jesus gives the, the, his last days uh, speech, Matthew 24 and 25, he mentions the days of Noah and the days of Lot. That... That when he comes, when he comes, not just to rapture the church, but when he comes to establish his kingdom on earth, life in this world are going to be like the days of Noah or they're going to be like the days of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction. And I don't know if you think about this, but Sodom and Gomorrah, when... When Lot chose, you have to go back and read this in Genesis, but when Lot chose to go to that part of the world, you know, him and Abraham, they had to divide their, their flocks because there was a little conflict and the land wasn't enough to sustain everybody's cattle. And so they divided. And remember, Lot chose this area because of its lushness, because of the greenery, and it was beautiful. And... It's down by the Dead Sea now, and the area is close to the Dead Sea. And, and, and when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he really he, he annihilated it. 
you know, it's like burn earth there. I mean, it just there's nothing there. And since then, since God did that, in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're just now finding where Sodom and Gomorrah was, you know, 3,500 years later. Because God's, God fulfills His word. He, it says he, he just judged it. He condemned it to extinction. There'll never be another city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though at one time that was a lush plain. Not anymore. But anyway, all that said, a little history. By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example. I love that word example. A typos, you know, a word picture, a placard, something we can look at and see and say, this is the way it is. This is the way, this is what judgment's going to look like. What it's saying is what he did at Sodom and Gomorrah, he's going to do again. We read about that also in the book of Revelation that some of this judgment's by fire. Making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So just as God poured fire and brimstone, sulfur, and, uh, and I know you've heard me say this, but it's just the Bible is so alive. You can go to Israel today and you can go down by the Dead Sea and you can tour these areas which they know kind of where they think Sodom and Gomorrah existed. I mean, it's under tons of silt and sand and ash. But even today, and you, you can even watch YouTube videos on this, and our guide showed us you can find sulfur balls in the sand now. I've been there. I've seen them. And you can set these sulfur balls, which are thousands of years old, which are a witness to what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, I'm, what I'm saying is, if God did this at Sodom and Gomorrah, and He says He's going to do it when He judges the world, is God going to do it? Can He do it? That's right. So you can go there now, and they're, they're, I'm telling you the truth. You can take those sulfur balls. You have to dig for them sometimes, and you can, you can light them. And it's some of the hottest heat known to man today after all these years because this is what God reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah. And some of those same words are used to describe God's judgment in the book of Revelation. Just incredible how Peter relates those things. Simon says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. This is 1 Corinthians 15. So the dead will be raised imperishable. That's those that are in the grave. This is, this is a synonymous passage to 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, the rapture passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says the dead will be raised imperishable. And then it says, and we shall be changed. Let me read that again. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. You know, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's how 1 Thessalonians calls it. The dead will be raised imperishable. They're per we're perishable now, but we'll be raised imperishable. And then it says, then Paul says, and we, he's talking about those who are still alive. Paul believed this is going to happen to him. And we shall be changed. So those that are in the ground are going to be caught up imperishable. And then Paul says, and we, he thinks he's going to be alive, and we shall be changed. Folks, whether that was 2,000 years ago or a week ago, this is still true. The dead in Christ will rise first, and those of us who are alive and remain will be called up to meet the Lord in the air, and we will forever be with the Lord. Amen? This is God's promise. Let me just show you one more cross-reference as you're holding your finger in Revelation 9. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me show you this real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I, I, I quoted a verse uh, from this while ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I mean, not, you, you don't have to know this, but this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. When you get towards the end of it, this is where it talks about if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation, old thing. 
that's a great verse. And then it talks about we are ambassadors for Christ. You just, it covers the whole gamut of the Christian life. It talks about rewards. It talks about salvation. But I'm in chapter 5. And I want you to look at uh, verse, let me pick up at verse uh, 5. <clears throat> it says, He who prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The, we, my class talked a little bit about the Spirit this morning. So He's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that everything He's promised is going to come true. How do you know you're going to heaven? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Did you know that's what the Bible says? Do you know the, the Bible says of itself that the Spirit of God is your seal of salvation? Paul uses a word in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians that's, that was the common word for an engagement ring when he describes the Holy Spirit is our, is our Erebon, is our guarantee, is our seal. It guarantees that every... So God gave us an engagement ring when we got saved. And that engagement ring is the Holy Spirit. And when you give an engagement ring, the promise is everything I'm telling you, Jesus says, is going to come true. So all the, that's why Paul says all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. So this is the promise, the, the Spirit. So he says he gave us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. You're looking at your Bibles. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Amen? But here's the key. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. I love that. It's a little short phrase. It's a great memory verse. We make it our aim to please Him. Now, you and I, we have to be honest. If, if we lived what we say we believe, if we sold out to this truth that Jesus is coming, then the next verse says, look what he says in the next verse, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If we believe that Christ is going to... And we say we do. I'm not being ugly, but yes, I am. I'm this way. If we really believe this, that Jesus Christ is going to come back, rapture the church, and then we're going to stand before Him at a place called the judgment seat, which don't let that scare you in the sense that the judgment seat was where you got rewards. It was the victor's judgment seat. So it's not like he brings up all your sin because that was paid by Christ, right? You with me? Right? See, that's important. The judgment seat was what they would use in the games, the Olympic games and the games at Corinth. Ephesus had games. And the judgment seat was where you would come up to get your first place, second place, third place. You'd get your little laurel wreath or your little pin or your little trophy. For what you accomplished. It's not where they browbeat you for losing. It's where when and so we're all we're all gonna appear at the judgment seat. So what does that tell you? We're all victors, right? Because only victors went to the judgment seat, right? First place, second place, third place. And this is why Paul says, run to win. Don't run to come in third place, run to win. But we're all gonna appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And this says. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Folks, this fact that Jesus is going to come and rapture his church and then judge this world and pour out his wrath ought to make us holy in our lifestyles. It ought to change the way we live. Well, now we got, we got just a minute. I want you now, I want you to go to Revelation 9. And let me read a couple of these verses and, and uh, kind of peel the paint off the wall again about what's going on here. Revelation chapter 9. You know, you're thinking about demonic entities. Really, these are probably fallen angels that are coming out of the Abuso. I'm convinced they're the, the angels <clears throat> that fell, that did the dastardly deeds 
in Genesis 6. Let me, let me say something about that. I know some of you have a hard time believing literally what Genesis 6 teaches. Because we believe, and I'm not alone, I mean there's millions of scholars that believe this, that fallen angels fell from the divine council and there's a group of them decided to do this and they started having relations with earthly women. And their offspring were giants and they're called Nephilim. You can read it right there in Genesis chapter 6. And those Nephilim then had children too. And that's where when you keep reading on into history, you, they have the name Raphaim, Zimzumim. You, so you have all these descendants that have the devil's seed in them. Honest, the fallen angel seed in them. So you think, well, how can that be? Well, won't you, if you, once you understand giants and, and that evil seed that made them, they're cannibals, they're sexual perverts, they're, they're just destructive when you read history about what they did. But what's harder to believe? That fallen angels had relations and produced this monster of people that corrupted mankind? Or is it harder to believe that God went through the birth canal of a Jewish woman? See, we need for Christ to go through the birth canal to be born from a virgin. That's what we need. But we don't think we need the giants and the, and the Nephilim, but we do because it's through understanding their corruption that you understand the Old Testament. You begin to understand why when Israel was doing its battling, when they would go to a, a part of the, new, the Holy Land as they're conquering the land, God would say, you've got to kill everybody. It's because those tribes were descendants of the giants. And he would say, you've got to wipe them off the face of the earth. And then go another 30 miles and God would let those people be captive. You wouldn't have to kill them. You could just take them captive. You begin to understand why those things took place when you understand how the devil corrupted the seed of man. And God was fixing that. He started it by doing the flood. But then later on, Joshua and the armies of Israel had to kill other people because they were deceived. What I'm saying is just as we understand salvation through Christ being born of a virgin, you understand the Old Testament when you comprehend what the Nephilim who they were in Genesis chapter 6. But now I'm back in Revelation chapter 9. See, it makes sense to me when you study that. I'm in Revelation chapter 9. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star falling from heaven on earth, and it was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And we went through a lot of this last week. And, and they were given power like the power of a scorpion of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Somehow or another, when folks would not take the mark of the beast, and would respond to salvation in Christ, God would seal them. Just like He seals us with the Holy Spirit, He seals them somehow or another. They have a mark on their forehead. These demonic entities or these fallen angels that come out of the pit, they can harm people, but they cannot harm those that have been sealed by God. You and I were sealed at salvation. The Holy Spirit sealed us. That's why nothing Jesus says in John 10, nobody can, can pluck you out of my hand. Right? You're sealed. And, and then he says, my father's greater than I and nobody can pluck you out of my father's hand. You've been sealed by the Spirit. You're secure. So they can't hurt those that are sealed on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months. We kind of know why. You know, the, the lifespan of a locust. But not to kill them. They torment but not kill. Remember the secret of that? Because what... Where did, the, where did these entities come from? The abyss, the pit, the hell. They came from the bottomless pit. They came from hell. And they could harm, but they couldn't kill, right? Isn't that a great truth? Because that's the nature of hell. Pain, but no annihilation, right? 
See, people want to believe that you go to hell, but you're eventually burned to death or you no longer exist. That's not true. There's no annihilation. There's eternal damnation, but there's no annihilation. Um, it says they were allowed to torment for five months, but not kill them, and their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings, stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, and they'll not be able to find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then he tells us something that that's bad enough. That's just horrific. Now, these, they're coming out of the abyss. Somewhere in the pit of this earth, there's this abyss. They're coming up out of the earth. But now he's going to tell us a little bit more about these, these entities. In appearance, the locusts were like horses. Now, just from reading the text, I am, I'm believing, he's telling me, they're the size of horses. That these locust, freaky-looking entities that have a scorpion sting are the size of a horse. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads were, were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their rings were like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. And I want you to notice there, hell has levels of leadership and authority. We're, we're going we're to come back to that in a minute. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it's Apollyon. And remember, there was three woes. This is the first woe. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And let me just read a little bit more right here, and then I'm going to read a verse or two, and we'll close. It says, Then the sixth angel... So again, we're, we're, in the, we're, in the, we're in the trumpet judgments. This is going to be the sixth angel that's going to blow his trumpet. So the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now folks, I'm a literalist. I'm 60 years old. I've been saved for 44 years. I've been preaching for like 35 years. The older I get, the more literal I take it. I don't think these are symbolism. I don't think these are word pictures. I think it's telling us what these entities are going to do. So after these hordes of entities come boiling out of the abyss, out of the pit of hell, then you have these other entities that have been held around the great river Euphrates and they've been, God has had them there and, and in time he's been waiting to release them for this very moment. It says, so the four horns of the golden altar, that's the altar of incense, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops, now see this is where you're going to say, are these physical military troops or are they demonic troops? Let's keep reading. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of, of the horses were like lion's heads. 
and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. So what harms, and some scholars say we're talking about millions of entities, they're entities, I don't think this is a physical army, that these millions of entities that where the harm comes from is from what comes out of their mouth. And folks, I'll remind you that those three characteristics, smoke, sulfur, and fire, are the same words you find at Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the same judgments, the same parts of judgment. When God poured His wrath out on Sodom and Gomorrah, these three characteristics were true there. And somehow or another in God's judgment of this world, folks, it's hell on earth. God is pouring out His wrath on mankind for, for rejecting His Son, for persecuting His Son, and He's paying them back for all of their sin. So it says, By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Verse 20, and we stop here. And folks, you can go back and study. We've already had a fourth of mankind. When you go through the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you had a fourth die there. You're already over a half of the world's population. Now this is post-rapture. But you're having half. Let's just say half the world's population by now have died. Um, some from this. Some have been dying from starvation. I mean, we, from some of the stuff that's been happening earlier. Folks, this is God pouring out His judgment. This is facing a holy God without any covering. Folks, these people ask for this. They've defied him the whole time. Look what happens. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, you're getting, you're, let's just say out of seven years of tribulation, let's say you're at the end of the sixth year. I mean, you are, I don't know exactly when, but you're towards the end of the tribulation because the bold judgments come quickly. So, so they've gone through, let's just say six years of tribulation. And there's one more year to go. There's, you know, the bowls of wrath haven't been poured out. So it says the rest of mankind, they know, where, they know who's pouring. We know, we read that, they know who's pouring out the judgments. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of their hands. Now, this is very important that you read this, and we'll close. The rest of mankind, because you wonder sometimes, why does God save some people and other people don't get saved? Or sometimes I wonder, how can people not get saved when they hear the gospel? And it's a mystery. You know, it's, it's God's salvation. He's the one that's, that distributes it. But you wonder. Well, in light of all these judgments, look what the heart of man does. And folks, if it wasn't the grace of God, you wouldn't have got saved. You wouldn't have repented on your own and come to Christ. You know that. This is an example of the heart of man. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Folks, they still loved materialism. They still loved money. And they would not repent. And they listened to teachings of demons. And they worshiped false entities. No different than what's going on today. Our world is full of doctrines of demons. Our world is full of idol worship. We're full of things that have been built with gold and silver and bronze and stone. And every day millions of people bow down and worship these items. 
So they worship these, these deities that aren't deities that cannot hear or walk. And look what it says. Nor did they repent of their murders. This is where you know Satan's in total control. Because the Bible says in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. They did not repent of their murders. Can you imagine the murderous havoc that's going on on the face of this earth? Remember, dark, it's going to be dark much longer. That was the last judgments we saw. The sun won't shine the part of the day that it usually the moon won't be as bright. There'll be more darkness and more death. There'll be more murders. Can you imagine the murderous activity on the face of the earth during the tribulation? What people will do to steal somebody's food? Because, you know, the, the, half the grass and vegetation's been burned up. No water. You know, the water's been poisoned. Can you imagine the murderous activity? Nor did they repent of their murders or of their sorceries. By the way, that's drug use. Uh, pharmacy, pharmaceuticals. They will not repent of their murders, of their drug use, of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. They will not repent. Let me just say this. If you're here today and you know you're not saved, you, you know you're not. I grieve with you because even now, being saved 44 years, I still remember what it was like to be lost and come to grips with the fact that without Christ there's an eternal hell I, I can still feel the fear the first time I realized that when I was 15, 16 years old the only hope you have is through Christ but let me just tell you this if you're here today and you're convicted of your sins and God is, is called you, you know it He's convicted you. You have this stirring of your soul. Folks, that's a miracle. Because normally the heart of man is hard and wicked. So if you're being stirred, if God's convicting you of your sin, let me just tell you something. That's just simply the grace of God. He doesn't have to do that. So I want to remind you that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. And He alone is who you need to trust in. Amen? Now we'll pick up here in the book of Revelation next week. Now, as many of you know, uh, Chas, come on, you and Melissa. Y'all come on. Avery, come on, sweetie, if you don't mind. Um, you okay with this, sweets? Um, Melissa, you or Chaz one, just share with the church where y'all are right now. Well, we uh, have a uh, diagnosis, um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, nodular sclerosis, I think is uh, the full, right? Yeah, there's a full thing. So uh, we found that out uh, Tuesday, I guess. Uh, so uh, we're waiting to uh, to go, um, we're going to go tonight to uh, Birmingham, and um, we will uh, pretty much be up there all day tomorrow uh, running various tests and uh, things like that to kind of figure out where we are stage-wise um, and um, you know, kind of what the plan is going to be going forward. So uh, we'll spend the day Monday. Uh, hopefully by the end of the day have some, some more concrete answers of kind of where we're going to go with all that. So um, that's kind of where we're at in a nutshell. So uh, certainly, you know, certainly not something that we uh, kind of came out of nowhere, really. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where we are. Avery, you're 18. done this on many occasions. We're going to lay our hands on her and on Jim, somewhere around them. And let's, let me just explain what you do when you lay on those hands. Really, you're uniting your souls and your hearts in believing that God can do a work in their life. Uh, it's, it's 
not going to say that God's going to use today, this is what we're believing. We're believing that God's going to use medicine. He could do it miraculously, but he may choose to use medicine to eradicate this cancer. Amen? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to pray for. And we're going to trust him, and we're going to believe in him, and we're going to love this family. But we want to unite our hearts, and I know you want to do the same thing, but we're going to gather around them, we're going to place our hands on them, and then we're going to say a little prayer, and while we're praying, you certainly can pray as well, okay? So guys, come, let's lay our hands on them. You can touch her, him, just any of them. We just want to have our hands together and uh, want to say a prayer. Wave you hold on to me. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm just going to say a little prayer, okay? Guys, y'all be praying. And, and Avery, we love you. And uh, God's going to do a work, okay? Father, first of all, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Father, we don't know what tomorrow's going to hold, but you do. Lord, I pray that every doctor, every nurse, every professional that's going to come across the path of sweet Avery, that, Lord, that the answers that they're looking for, they'll have those answers. Lord, for Chaz and Melissa, every step they take tomorrow, I pray that you'll guard them and guide them. God, give them wisdom way beyond their ability. Father, even now, that, that particular doctor, that, that treatment, uh, that technician, that process, that infusion, whatever that might be, God, we're going to claim that you're going to use those things to heal this sweet girl. God, it, it's eradication. Lord, we want, we want a healing. But God, we're going to trust you that it might be a, a, a year. It might be a few months. But God, you're, you're going to use these things to bring restoration uh, to Avery Jordan. Father, thank you that Christ is our victory. Father, thank you for the privilege to, to bow before you and submit to the throne of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his precious and holy name that all of us pray. And all God's people said, we love you, okay? So we'll, we'll be telling you more and more about you, more and more about where they're going to be. We'll keep, up, we'll keep you up with them. They'll keep, they'll keep us up with what they're doing, and we'll let you know. You can be dismissed, or you can hang around. Thank you all for being here.